Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Tell Us a Good Story. We have had such a fun conversation with Dan Capron that we're going to continue on with a second episode. Round he two. had so many good stories to talk. We're just going to keep going. So, hope you enjoy another episode of Tell Us a Good Story. So Dan, from 40 years of being a referee at high school, small college, mm-hmm. you know, Big Ten official, what's one of your more memorable stories, oh, I, yeah. I guess, from, because the, the one I had read that I thought was hysterically funny was the Joe Paterno story um, when he was at Ohio State, gosh, back, I think, early 2000s, um, when he had to run across the field, apparently Dan was... Oh, you were there! He was yeah, a referee was, at that game. Yeah. You were. Can you, can you tell Steph that one? Or if you have another story off the top no, of your no, head. No, I, I mean, I've got one story that, that, I mean, that's a funny one. I've got another one that's that's not funny, but it's poignant. But um, yeah, the uh, you know, as you can imagine, Ohio State, Penn State, that's a rivalry game. Yeah. And and, and every year, you know, the, it's a border war. Uh, and uh, this one was at Ohio State. And with a couple of minutes to go in the first half, uh, there was a TV timeout. And just as the TV timeout was ending, and I was getting ready to blow the ball ready for play to restart the game. Uh, one of the teams, I, I believe it was, I can't remember who was on offense, but one of the teams was pinned back uh, on their on their own five-yard line. So I'm basically standing in the end zone, okay, uh, looking out uh, at the field. And just before I blow the ball ready for play, I'll be doggone, here comes Coach Paterno across the field. And he's running right at me. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. This, what is happening here? And the whole stadium, it was so eerie because the stadium, which is always rocking, it's always loud, it's always raucous, went dead silent because everybody saw what I saw. The teams stopped and every head turned and they were all looking at him as he's running right at me. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I mean, I, I've never been attacked by a coach in, on national TV in front of millions. I mean, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what am well, as he nears me, I realize he's not even looking at me. And he ran right past me, came within a foot of me, and he wow. ran right off the field. And then I realized he was running in the direction of his own locker room mm-hmm. uh, at Ohio State. The half ended uneventfully. And as the Penn State team was running off, I went up to their defensive coordinator at the time, Tom Bradley, uh, great coach, uh, great, great guy. I said, Tom, what was that all about? And he said, oh, he says, Joe's just got a touch of the flu. He's got some diarrhea. He had to go. <laughs> Literally, didn't, didn't run around the field. No. Like a no. beeline straight across, straight the, across field. the field to the straight locker room. The and you know what? When you're Joe Paterno at the age of 80, whatever, you can get away with you, that. You can, it, right? You know, I mean, we're going to cut him a yep. little bit of slack. But, you know, there's a lot of things they don't teach you in referee school. And that, that, that's, oh, I bet. You know, that's one of them. Like how mentally exhausted would you be oh, Dan, I was thinking that too. after a game or physically, mentally and just, physically. Yeah, from the running, but I'm just thinking from focusing as closely as you have to for three and a half, four hours, whatever it may the, be. The mental part of it is actually more exhausting than the physical part. Yeah. Especially earlier in my career, you know, and you know, later in my career, okay, now I need ice bags on my knees and stuff. <laughs> and it, you know, and and if you're in a 
uh, a hostile uh, weather environment, like working at Miami in the heat or, or working uh, at, in a real cold game. And I've had some of those as well where, you know, you're soaking wet and you're freezing cold. Yeah. Those, those, those are very, very difficult games physically, but it's the mental exhaustion that, that, that is so draining. Uh, and that at the end of the game, because again, 160 to 200 plays, every single one of those plays, you have to be dialed in. You cannot let your guard down. You're the, and, and, you know, the offense is out there. Well, when the offense is done, they go, they get to go right. sit on the sideline. When the water. defense is done, they get to go sit on the sideline. Okay. Well, now we're going to have a kickoff. They get to go sit on the sideline. We don't get to sit on the sideline. We have to be out there every single play. And, and, and that's what, that, that's what gets mentally exhausting. What is your, I mean, you're a lawyer, so you can kind of pick and choose your work schedule. Yes. But what, so tell me, do you have the whole season planned out? Like, okay, this week it's, I'm here this week. I'm here. Like, do they have that planned out for you? That's a great question. Um, They have it planned out, but we don't know it. Um, We only know our schedule about a month out. Okay. Okay. And not beyond. And there are reasons for that. Um, one reason is because the boss doesn't want us to know that we're going to see that coach again or that we're going to see that team again. Uh, the boss, and, and then there's, you know, reasons about, you know, gamblers and, and yeah, things that like makes that. Sense. They, don't, they don't want that to be public information. Now, they, they, they need us to have at least a month out because we've got to get our travel figured out. I mean, if I've got to fly to Nebraska, for instance, I got to make sure I can get a seat on an airplane yeah. and that it's not all sold out. So, I mean, they do have to, they do have to give us enough lead time to be able to get our travel arrangements made and everything else. But we don't, and then once the season starts, we work a game and then get a game, work a game, get a game, work a game, get a game. There are typically, there are 14 weekends in the season. We get two buys, two off weeks. And we'll work 12 games in the course of a season. Hmm. So. so if you're on that plane, do f- not fans, but well, like fans, do they look at you and you're like, I know who I you know are. And then they start like drilling you. Yeah, but uh, that's not as, that's not common. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, si- sitting around airports. Yeah. I mean, people will sometimes recognize you and, and it's more like, hey, are you going to the game? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I am. Yes. And it's it's it, it's rarely anything more than that. Um, and and w- you know, we're very very discreet. We're very politic um, in terms of what we say and you know what we think. And um, I mean, we, we are arbiters. We are, we are neutral parties. And uh, even though this is a great emotional game, it's a great game because it's so emotional. Right. Uh, we are divorced from that emotion. We're, yeah. we're delighted to be out there, but we do not care who wins. And uh, we maintain that at all levels. So, Do you leave on Friday nights to get to the that, game? That's a great question. A lot of people think, oh, well, the officials just, you know, show up and they probably got a good parking space and they show up, you know, 20, 30 minutes before kickoff and park in the parking space and then walk in in their stripes. Nothing could be further from the truth. We arrive at the game site typically Friday afternoon. Okay. Um, the first thing that we have to be there for is dinner. Uh, once we've checked into the hotel, we go to dinner as a crew. Uh, we may not drink alcohol. 
Yeah. Uh, so we're not hard to spot. Oh, who are those nine guys over there all drinking iced tea? <laughs> tea. Right. Wow. Uh, but but we go to dinner together, and uh, you know we socialize as a crew. A crew is very much like a family, and um, we have to trust each other. We have to love each other, and we have to support each other during the game. And uh, a lot of that takes place off the field, as you can imagine. After dinner, we go back to the hotel, and then we start our pregame meeting. Our pregame meeting is essentially uh, multifaceted. We review any bulletins that come down from the Big Ten office. We review a uh, typically a 12 to 15-minute video that comes down from the Big Ten office, which contains plays from the preceding week, along with a voiceover commentary to tell us about either an excellent call or a missed call or a poor call, and, and we'll, we'll review that. We will also review in great detail our cruise game from the prior week. Uh, we will break that game down, and we will find countless mistakes that the graders missed. And when I say mistakes, I'm not talking necessarily about what you would consider to be yeah. a mistake. Ticky-tack. I'm talking about somebody who maybe is out of position. Um, somebody who didn't flow to the proper spot at the proper time. I mean, this is pretty arcane stuff, but if you're striving for perfection, you really do need to look at it in that level of detail. So we're going to break down with a very critical eye the work that we had done the week before, and we're going to talk about how we as a crew can better handle those situations and can coordinate more efficiently and more expertly so that should the situation arrive the following day, we're able to better handle it. Um, we're then going to shift gears and we're going to forget about things that have happened in the past. We're going to shift gears to the game that we're going to be actually officiating the following day. And we're going to look at video of both of those teams. We're going to know what, want to know what kind of an offense do they run? Do they run a no huddle or do they, do they run a hurry up? Are we going to see 200 plays in a game or a team like Iowa or Wisconsin, you know, they huddle up, they call their play. They come up to the line of scrimmage, they look around, they run the play clock down to three or four seconds, and then they snap the ball. Well, they're only going to have 150 plays in the game because of that pace. That's, I mean, I use Iowa and Wisconsin as an example, but, uh, but that's one of the things that we're looking at when we're looking at the film. Who's their best player? Is their best player so good that the other team is going to key on him and maybe commit a foul because that's the only way you're going to stop the kid? Do they have a kicker who's a senior and he's in line for a national award or is he a freshman and maybe he's out there scared to death? Um, You know, uh, how good is their quarterback? Uh, It's kind of a truism in the big 10. It's very difficult to win without an experienced quarterback. There are very few great teams that, that can win with a freshman quarterback. And that's one of the things we're going to want to know. So Dan, why does it matter when you're looking at the kicker? Are you just concerned of, okay, we may have some blocked kicks or some mistakes mm-hmm. or sure. you've got to look closer at the field goals because this guy's not going to be as accurate. Is that what you're well, looking for? We're looking at that. We're looking at left footed versus right footed because I, as the referee always have to be looking in at the ball and not at the back of the holder. So okay. I need to know which side to shift to if I see that kicking team coming out. So yeah, it, it's things like that. It's things like on the kickoff, is he going to drill the ball into and out of the end zone for a touchback every time? Or is that ball going to typically come down at the five to 10 yard line? Okay. That those are the things that we're looking for so that we can better equip ourselves 
to officiate the game. Knowing what's likely to happen can really vest us with a lot of advantages. I okay? bet. We're not going to prejudge anything. Right. We're just going to prepare ourselves for the game. There's just so many things in the course of a game that if they're done seamlessly, you don't even notice them. But to get to that seamlessness, you have to put into the time as preparation. Right. And that's what takes place on Friday night in a meeting that often spills over into Saturday morning. And then we will typically leave the hotel three hours before kickoff. Okay. Now, some hotels are closer than others uh, to the stadium. When we're at Purdue or Indiana, we're right on campus. Yeah. I mean, and the stadium is literally a couple of minutes away. At Indiana, we even get a police escort. Okay. Uh, at Michigan, we stay in the town of Chelsea, which is probably 15 miles from Ann Arbor. Okay. So th- there's different logistics in terms of physically getting to the game. But when we get to the game, now we've got our duties at the game site. And mm-hmm. with me as referee, those duties are even compounded. Very first thing I have to do, drop my bag in the locker room. I'm still wearing a jacket and tie. I have to go to the TV truck. I have to meet with the producer. I have to review the commercial format for the game. How many TV timeouts? What's the duration of those TV timeouts? How are we going to handle the coin toss if the game goes into overtime in terms of a TV break? Things along those lines. So does that change by station? Like if you're working with ESPN ABC versus Fox, there's a different... Really? Yes. Yeah. In terms of the number of uh, TV timeouts timeouts and the duration of the TV timeouts... It changes based upon uh, the, the the typically the station that you're on. Okay, you know ESPN, Fox, Big Ten Network, ABC. Right. Yeah. Dan, I'm already mentally exhausted listening to everything you have to do. So I can't even imagine I, how you are after the game. Well, <laughs> but I was just thinking too. I can only imagine Dan how close you would get to your crew members. Yes. By you're working Friday afternoon to Sunday morning or whatever. Yes. And it would be like a fraternity Mm -hmm. that you're part of. You are on the same team. You are all helping each other out. I I can only imagine how close you would get to those those other guys. In in order to have something that is a tighter bond than what we have, it would literally have to be a wartime situation of guys that you're going into battle with, which is more serious. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. But it is an intense situation over an extended period of time where we have no help but but each other right and we are you know you've got eight guys nine if you count the alternate 11 if you count the two guys in the replay booth and that's it and you're in a stadium like you said when we started this hundred thousand people and you're it and uh You've got to know it, and you've got to know it right now. And a lot of things will happen, like the paternal situation, that you can't plan for, Mm -hmm. no matter how much you meet before the game. And you have to just be able to make good decisions with good football common sense, guided by the rule book, knowing that you have total authority to do whatever you think should be done, but that you will be answerable for those decisions. Jeez. I can't imagine, Steph, if I'm on say Dan's crew, mm-hmm. and I'm the official who's tracking, say the wide receivers going out. And then I come up and Dan's like, yep, they're running a no huddle offense. I'm going to be running <laughs> all day long. <laughs> like I would be like, Dan, am I allowed to call a timeout here? Cause <laughs> like, I can't imagine 
how much running there would be for a, a couple of those officials that are, are tracking the wide receivers or whatever. The oh average Big Ten official is in phenomenal physical shape. And, and uh, if you're not, then you're going to do a disservice to the game because you do have to be in position to be able to make those calls. So. What's your workout regimen when you oh, are? I'm, re- I- I'm retired. No, before. <laughs> before. <laughs> you see that chair right there? Yeah. <laughs> Why do you think I like being the referee? The play's going away from me. It's going away from uh, me. There, yeah. Unless there's an interception or a fumble recovery and then I curl into Oh, that's position. true. Uh, but. Yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, you, you just do whatever you have to do to stay in shape. And the best way to get in shape is not to get out of shape. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it's a fool's errand to think that the season's over and now I can go in the tank for six months and then, you know, come summertime, I'll get back in shape. You just really have to try to yeah. stay in shape the whole time. That's my motto stuff. That's what I live We're by. We're still working on his workout <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, schedule. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> totally kidding. No, Kevin, you look great. <laughs> <laughs> so what... This is your first season in 40 years. What is your, like, is it going to be strange for you? Are you excited about this new, you know, normal? Grandkids. I'm I'm comfortable with my decision. Um, You know, I'm, I'm, I'm 63 and, and that's getting a little long in the tooth to be doing what we do every weekend. And although I was still able to do it, I mean, I have very good ratings last year, you know, you know, your own body. And you know your own limitations, and I've been I've I've noticed that you know I'm I'd slowed down a little bit. I've lost a step, and I never wanted it to get to the point where the boss would notice it. Mm. And so I figured it's always better to go out before that happens, rather than stay too late. So twenty years is a good round number to be in the Big Ten, and I figure it's time to give somebody a chance, somebody else a chance. Mm. Well, Dan, I love the round numbers: ten years high school, <laughs> ten years small college. 20 years, Big Ten, 40 years 40 total. Years. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Me being the numbers guy, You're right? Numbers guy. I, I love that. Yeah. So, had, did you ever have a situation, Dan, where um, you would have someone confront you after the game or run after you into the tunnel um, after the game or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Iowa uh, used to have a situation where our locker room was actually across the street from Kinnick Stadium. Oh. And and so when the game would end, this was when I first came in the league. Imagine this. The officials have to run to an exit out of the stadium into the crowd. Oh, no. Yes. Across the street <laughs> and into another building where our locker room is. And at a certain point, the officials and I was, I was just a, a neophyte at the time the officials association came to our boss and said, look, this is a disaster waiting to happen. We need at the very least, we need an escort to be able to get across the street. Because people would know you're coming through that gate (laughs) every week. Correct. And so the university of Iowa then decided to assign us a security escort consisting of no offense, a female officer who was about five foot one, who weighed about 110 pounds. And that was our security escort to get across the field or across the street. Thank you, Iowa. Uh, I, I am I, now this is apocryphal, so I can't testify to this. But this scenario that I've just described originated during the Hayden Fry era, which predates me. Okay. Right. Uh, and Hayden Fry apparently wanted it this way. 
because he figured that if an Iowa game came down to the last second and a last second call, if you can plant that seed in the back judge's brain about which way that call should go, he wanted to extract every possible advantage for his team. I can't criticize him for that. That's his job, but the scenario is all wrong. And by the way, that no longer exists. In fact, it, it, it doesn't exist anywhere in the league. It would be unheard of uh, anywhere in the league. So. Well, you talk about being like this being like a clinic. I've got two like serious, more serious questions. The, the one would be, I had seen something maybe a couple of years ago, Dan, where Major League Baseball, someone had done a study on balls and strikes called versus the home team mm-hmm. and the road team, right? And the the data suggested that it was significantly steered toward the home team was getting better calls because of the reaction the home plate umpire was getting from mm. the fans, the stadium. Have you ever seen anything like that where, I mean, I, I know you have to be completely unbiased, but where the atmosphere, the crowd, dictates. like you just said, would dictate mm-hmm. a last second call or penalty or anything like that? No, none. No, and I'm not aware that any data has ever been kept about calls, you know, for the home team or against the home team. Uh, I don't know of any data, but I can tell you that from an on-field official, if you are uh, anything other than oblivious to crowd reaction in terms of making a call that needs to be be made, then you're not going to last very long at the Big Ten level because, as I said, every game, every play of every game, is broken down by the Big Ten office. That's true. And those yep. numbers are tracked, and you are responsible. And when they're watching that video, there That's is true. no sound. Yeah, They don't care about crowd reaction. They're watching it, and it's muted. Yeah. And all they're looking at is the X's and O's. So we look at the X's and O's, and, mm-hmm. and that's, how we, that's how we call the game. So the other question I had was, is there a such thing as a makeup call, in, no. in your opinion? Oh, God, no. No, that's, uh, that's, that's mythology. Uh, I mean, it may exist at some level. I'll put it this way. I've never seen it at any level of officiating, even down really in to high school. the lowest levels when I started. Really? There is absolutely no such thing as a makeup call. If you make a mistake, the worst thing that you can do is compound it by making another mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want to make sure that you strive for perfection on every single call. Now, perfection is an elusive goal, and, and it's it's never attained, but if you aim for per- perfection, you're likely to hit excellence. Wow. So the other, I had one other question. Okay. I love this was, who's the worst coach he's ever run into? And I, I saw a brief comment, I think on the Chicago Tribune, Dan, but um, again, it goes back to, I would not want this man's job. <laughs> Dan, I volunteered. Here's a quick, here's a quick story for you, Dan. <laughs> Back before we had children, I volunteered at our local church to be an upward basketball referee, okay? I was like, okay, I played basketball high school, a little bit in college. I would love to help out our church starting up this basketball league. So I, I volunteered to be a referee. I soon found out, probably by week two, Dan, I don't like grown adults yelling at me, especially when I think I am correct. Right. <laughs> so with you, you have had to deal with some ridiculously off the charts personalities and yeah. blow ups. Yeah, yeah. And who's 
but like, but let me let me let, let me put that in context. The worst, the absolute worst coaches that I've ever dealt with are at the high school level. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Not, not, not the Big Ten. By the time you get to that level, I mean, this is a business. Like right. I said, these are CEOs uh, of major big money involved. Yeah. Okay, and these these are professionals, and they understand. I, I think they understand intuitively that you know screaming at an official isn't going to get them what they want. Okay, there there are more effective ways to make their point, and and not that there haven't been examples, some notorious examples of coaches losing it and doing silly, stupid things at the Big Ten level. But that's the exception. That's really not the rule. The rule is is that these coaches are extremely tuned in. They are extremely talented. They do things that I couldn't dream of doing in terms of the management of this game and the management of a major college football team. The, the calling of the plays, both on offense and defense and the strategy and the ability to do it quickly, just yeah. like that, so quickly. I'm in awe of most of these guys. And and they they just really do such an exceptional job. I have a job to do as well. And it's a different job. And, and uh, yeah, there have been examples of coaches yelling and misbehaving, but I want to emphasize that's really the exception. And it's, re- and it's really not the rule. Now, you know, fans... The word "fan" is short for fanatic, so of <laughs> right. course, I mean that, that, that the fans are idiots. I, I I shouldn't say they're not all idiots, but there are idiots among them. Okay, um, and and that's just that's just part of the game. But you, we don't we don't interact with with right uh, with fans. Well, especially when alcohol is involved, right? With yeah, tailgating yeah. And, and all yeah, of that. Yeah. But yeah, I'm su- sure. I'm actually surprised you said the high school level is is oh, the yeah, worst that you've seen. Yeah, well, you know, because it, it's, I mean, these guys are, they all think that they're going to be the next Nick Saban, yeah. you know, and, they, and they're all living vicariously through this job where they think that, you know, it's all that. And I got news for you, coach. I know Nick Saban. <laughs> Nick Saban is a friend of mine. Coach, you're no Nick Saban. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. I hate to break it to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, Steph, I am fascinated by Dan. Just think in the scenarios that we could ask Dan, because just your background, just absolutely incredible. And, and how you've balanced a professional life and being a senior partner at a law firm with then having a, a second wife, full, yeah, but a second full time job mm-hmm. in the fall. Yeah, four daughters, mm-hmm. wife, staying married for 40 years. Yeah. Like that's, you're a busy dude. Well, one of the keys to my success is that my wife would go with me to all my games. Really? Uh, well, probably if I work 12 games a year, she'll probably go to 11. Okay? Oh, really? Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And we, we travel together. We we leave on uh, Friday mornings and we go wherever it is we're going. And uh, what we like to do is we, we've almost made a tradition out of it. We check into the hotel and then we, I, I like to walk around the campus and, and I love the campus atmosphere. And when I say the campus, I mean all 14 campuses. Yeah. All 14. I love them. And we walk around the campus and the kids are out. It's a Friday afternoon yeah. on a Big Ten college campus. The kids are happy. Yeah. It's the end of the week. Fall weather. It's, it's fall weather. We'll go to the bookstore. My wife will drop a couple of hundred dollars on stuff <laughs> for my grandchildren. I bet. You know, and they all got their they all got gear. They all got their gear. They all got they all got in fact the the neighbors of my daughters and their husbands are so thoroughly confused because one day they'll be out wearing Purdue guard they're wearing Rutgers and then the next day they're wearing Nebraska and it's like where did you guys go to school well it's kind of a long story (laughs) 
we've got uh, I, I got gear from all the kids but you know these campuses are such wonderful places I mean the, the learning the, the the scholarship Nobel Prize winners it just, I'm just in awe of every one of these universities I just love the atmosphere that's there and then you take all of that and you put it on a Big Ten football field it doesn't get any better than that I love that you take your wife with you I love that but that I'm, just oh I'm actually kind of surprised because it sounds like He's not going to be spending a whole lot of time with her. Yeah, so what does she do when you're doing all of Shopping, this? it sounds like. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, well she, you know, um, I, I mean, on, um, on uh, Saturday morning, you know, she'll, she'll, it depends. You know, Big Ten games, they either have an, an 11 o'clock slash noon kickoff right. or a 2.30 slash 3.30 kickoff. Well, if it's the 11 o'clock kickoff, there's not a lot of time to screw around on Saturday morning. Right, that's yeah. true. I yeah. mean, you know, you got to get up and you got to get there and everything else. And, and, you know, my wife's like most people, the, the best part of the show is the pregame band yeah. performance. So she'll typically be in her seat at least a half an hour, you know, before kickoff. And we get, we, the officials, we, we get tickets to the games as part of our compensation package oh, which is really nice yeah and it, it's such a tremendous perquisite and uh so as a result i i encourage all my guys to to bring their family members to the games and you know they sit in a in a certain section uh and those are the official seats and uh she'll sit there and she'll watch the game and you know a, a, as the game gets deep into the fourth quarter she'll leave so she doesn't get caught in the crowd and then i meet her back at the hotel afterwards mm. that's how we do it Steph, can you imagine watching me at a game like that? No. And people booing me, no. yelling nope. at me. Nope. You wouldn't Mama handle that bear, well. Mama Bear would come out. <laughs> Mama Bear, like, excuse me? Like, no, no, no. We do not talk to my husband that way. So I don't even know how your wife handles that. Handles, especially that she's an attorney. She'd start throwing, you know, some knowledge on Some knowledge down. I'm like, oh, nope. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you my one funny wife story. Um, we had a game at Michigan a number of years ago. This was at least 10 years ago and they were playing, I think it was Purdue and um, it was late, it was late in the season and the weather had turned after we left our house. I mean, when we left our house, it was 65 degrees. By the time we got to Michigan, it was 40 degrees Right, and, and it's, and it's blustery and it's windy. Well, she had, um, she had packed, uh, a, a stadium jacket that she had purchased one time when the weather got unexpectedly bad at Michigan State. So she had a, a green Michigan State uh, <laughs> jacket. And so we're at Michigan and they're playing Purdue and we're at the hotel. And I, uh, I said, what are you going to wear to the game? She said, well, I'm going to wear my jacket. I said, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> she said, uh, what do you mean you wouldn't do that? So, well, that's the Michigan State. Yep. She said, but they're not playing Michigan State. So I wouldn't do that. Doesn't matter. She said, I, she said, oh, yeah, you're just, you're being super silly. You're being hyper cautious. So you, you, there's no need to do, do anything. Well, I see, you can see where this is going. Yeah. See you after the game. See her after the game. Said, how'd it go? I can't believe those fans. <laughs> They were putting peanut shells in my foot, and they were doing. They were they were saying all these rude comments. There, I said, I told you not to wear that green jacket to Michigan. They were not nice to me. They were not nice to me. 
<laughs> that oh, would be his stuff. They were so mean. That would be. They were so mean. Yeah, imagine what that guy would be here. Yeah. Without those earphones then. Right. So what what are you going to do this fall then, Dan? Assuming there is a football season, right? Are are you yeah, going to travel with your uh, wife? Are you spending time with the grandkids? Well, yeah, the first question is, you know, are we going to have a, a football season? And nobody knows what's going to happen there. But but the next time when football reopens, the answer to your question is, I, I really don't know. Yeah. Um, I don't know if my retirement means true retirement and I'm done. Um, my boss may have things that he wants me to do for him. And to the extent that that's true, I would be very influenced by that because I hold him in such high regard and such respect. His name is Bill Carollo. He's a former Big Ten official himself. He wasn't in the Big Ten very long because the NFL swooped him up at about the age of, I don't know, it was ridiculously young, 30, 32, something like that. And then he did a whole uh, career in the NFL. He worked two Super Bowls uh, and uh, he took over the Big Ten in about, oh, I don't know, 20, 2009, 20, right around in there. Okay. And uh, just a fantastic boss, Uh, the best guy in the world that you would ever want to work for. He praises publicly and he chastises privately, which is mm, that's you good. Can't, that's you can't ask good. for anything more than that. His criticisms are always constructive and they're always fair. And uh, uh, he's treated me with nothing but kindness uh, for the whole time that, that I've worked for him. So if he has something that he would like me to do, I would be heavily influenced by that. Yeah. But that aside, I'm retired. Yeah. So we'll see. I could totally see him in like a TV booth or whatever, being like a Mike Pereira, Gene Steratore, where go to him, hey, explain what's going on here. Yeah. When it went during replay or, or whatever. That would be pretty cool. So what was yeah. the other story you said was very poignant? You know, th- th- yeah, th- 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 this is this is really my favorite story. And, and it, it, it has to do with the fact that when I came into the Big Ten, I didn't come in as a referee. I came in as a headlinesman because everybody at the time uh, would come in at a, at a position other than referee because a referee is the crew chief mm-hmm. and the supervisor of officials at the time, a gentleman by the name <clears> of <throat> Dave Perry, he was firmly of the opinion that you have to come in at a different position to earn the respect of your peers yeah. and earn the respect of the coaches before he's going to entrust you with command of that game. Okay. And so like it or not, that was his policy. So I came in, even though I'd been a referee at the division three level, I came in as a headlinesman which is the guy on the line of scrimmage, right on the sideline, looking straight down the line of scrimmage at the ball. That is a very, very difficult position to work because you are responsible for so much and you're responsible for it when the play many times is coming right at you. And there's very limited room behind you because you've got this football team standing behind you. In any event, the first four years that I was in the Big Ten, first three years really, I was finishing at the bottom of the ratings every single year, last among headlinesmen. And I was really struggling. I was really struggling. And at the time, there was a technical advisor, a gentleman by the name of Gil Marchman, who happened to be African-American, who was from Chicago. He himself had been a Big Ten referee. He advocated for me. And I really didn't know him well. I mean, I knew who he was, but it's not like he was a buddy of mine. It's not like he was a good friend. And unbeknownst to me, he was advocating for me with the boss. And he Hmm. was essentially saying, look, give this young man a chance. And the boss did. 
and I eventually got onto a different crew and I proved myself and I did succeed at headlinesman and then I was moved to crew chief and I've, I've never looked back. But that was a pivotal moment in my career. The reason why this is a good story is that Gil Marchman, when he was a brand new official as a kid, maybe 19 years old, he was trying to join the local officials association in Chicago, the COA. Central Officials Association is one of the oldest and largest in the country. It's been around since 1929. Oh, wow. And it has produced an incredible array of talent uh, uh, in the officiating world. But at the time, and this is probably the late 50s or very early 60s, uh, the history of the COA wasn't all that proud as we look back on it because it was all white. Mm. And Gil Marchman was black. And he was trying to join the COA. Well, one of the ways that the COA was able to maintain its racial purity was by requiring any new member to have a sponsor. And Gil Marchman was sponsored into the COA as the first black member by a basketball official by the name of Leo Hennessy. The name's not important. But Leo Hennessy went on much later to become my father-in-law. No way. What? No way. Oh, I take goosebumps. it, It is a remarkable story that he took such a courageous stand on behalf of a young African-American official doing the right thing, which was not politically popular, cost him an incredible number of friendships, but he did the right thing. And then that official, an entire generation later, was in position to give that young man a chance. That's kind of cool. Wow. What a circle there. That's incredible. That's amazing. That is amazing. You know what would be amazing? I just thought of this earlier stuff. Now that Dan's retired, how fun would it be to have him watch a game with us like on our basement couch? <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> no, we would be watching a higher state game and Dan oh. would probably see me throw my hat at the TV. That sounds great. But then he would be like, you know, Kev, that's actually that was not a catch. That was not a catch, Kev, because his elbow actually touched out of bounds. And like I mean, what a great business idea. I was just thinking of Dan, like he could hire himself out to yes. be not only your personal attorney, there your you personal go. referee as well mm-hmm. to help explain things to you throughout the game. That would be amazing. See, I'm going to tell you one more. If, if we got time, I'm oh, tell oh, you okay. I want to tell you one quick postscript to that last story. Just an unrelated postscript. As I said, Leo Hennessy was a, a basketball official. He never worked football. Um, but ba- that was back in the day where the basketball officials, there were many of them that were also high school basketball coaches and they, they, they did both. It right. It's like kind of a conflict of interest to me, but I don't know if coach Harbaugh would want Ryan day as the official <laughs> in one of his games, but right. I, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that. Right. Probably true. not. Um, but, th- th- and this is at the high school level, of course, my father-in-law was the basketball coach at a high school uh, in the Chicago public league, Fenger high school. And, and historically Fenger was a football school. It was a football powerhouse. 
but it was never a strong basketball school. So he inherits this program, which was really not only no good, but it had no tradition and no history whatsoever. Well, one of the things that I later found out much, much, much later is that the coach who had had the job immediately prior to my father-in-law wouldn't let blacks on the team, Mm. wouldn't let black kids on the team. So my father-in-law is teaching gym class one day and the, the kids are playing basketball in gym class. And there is this one young African-American kid who's six, five, and he's quick and he can glide and he's, he can handle the ball and he's playing up around the rim. And my father-in-law calls him over and he says, excuse me, would you come out for the basketball team? And he said, well, no, I can't come out for the basketball team. He says, well, why not? He says, well, the the coach won't let black kids play on the basketball team. He says, well, I'm the coach now. And I would like you to come out for the basketball team. The kid looked at my father-in-law and he said, well, coach, can my twin brother come too? (laughs) He says, yes, bring your twin brother. That was Ronald and Donald. I'm sorry, I don't know their last name. The story has become folklore in my family's history. Ronald and Donald started for Fenger High School one year later. Okay. One year later, this team that had been in the pits of the public league played for the public league championship and went down to the final buzzer and lost by either one or two points to a team from also the public league, uh, the star of which was Cassie Russell. Oh, wow. Went on to play at Michigan and then went on to a Hall of Fame career in the NBA. But again, just an incredible story of a coach who's doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And then, wow, you know what? You do the right thing with no expectation that there's ever going to be any kind of a reward. Well, you know, the black kids from that team, and there were a few others as well, Five years ago, they all showed up at my father-in-law's funeral. Really? You talk about something that, you know, is emotional. It was really, it was really great. That's incredible. The impact that he had. On those lives. Yeah. That's incredible. amazing. It really keeps things in perspective, you know. Absolutely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you would (laughs) like to connect with Dan, right, or... Have him at your house. Yes, in a basement to watch a game to with you. To watch a game. Yes. <laughs> or you need a good workers' comp attorney. Yes. You can connect with Dan via capronlaw.com. Well, Dan, th- thank you so much for your time. We appreciate thank it, sir. You. Happy to do it, guys. Happy to do it. Thank you. Listeners, if you like what you just saw, like what you just heard, please go to iTunes, go to YouTube and subscribe, rate, review this podcast. That's the only way we'll be able to continue to produce this. Where else can they go, Stephanie? They can go to kevinandsteph.com. That's all I know. So, is that it? You crushed it. Yes, crushed it. Thank you, listeners.